This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I've got a book all about terrorism. What about you? I have got something um, inspired and wonderful and luminous. Um, My guest today is Magdalena Maguire. She was born in Poland, raised in Darwin and now lives in Melbourne. Her fiction has been published widely, including in Mislexia, uh, Overland, Island and The Big Issue. Her book, Born For You, is out now with Ultimo Press. Welcome, Magdalena. Thank you so much for having me. <sighs> Thanks for coming. Born For You is a collection of 12 richly layered stories about the lives of women at the crossroads of change. What inspired the anthology? Mm, well, it's interesting. I was reflecting on that now that it's out in the world. And I realised that I actually started writing a collection about motherhood before I even had children. So before I had children, I was really grappling with the kind of ethics and practicalities of bringing a child into the world. And then once I had children, all of that became more pertinent. Um, so the birth of my first child coincided with the point at which um, the US elected a president who was basically a fascist. And then, uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the birth of my second child basically kicked off a global pandemic. <laughs> so for yeah. me, um, I was really interested in the ways that personal and systemic change can be entwined. And that provides a through line in the book. So it really looks at the way that change, kind of big change and small change, affects family life and your life as a mother. Yeah, um, an interesting enmeshing of things. Mm. And that happens all the way through this book, Born For You. Mm. Um, So with your first story, Pause Remember, uh, you mentioned the pandemic just now. Mm. And this this story is set in the pandemic. and it's a it's a incredible story. It's full of, it's it's a wry, relatable story full of sh- snapshots capturing the unique flavor of lockdown insanity. Um, so obviously this was based on personal experience. Yeah. So some of the stories I would say are straight up fiction, and some of them align more closely to my life. So I think that story is you could call it auto fiction. Um, but the funny thing is, um, I mean, I was going through the Melbourne lockdown and writing that story but in a way that story was like a parallel life that I was living so Mm. I didn't literally do all the things in the story and that's not literally me as a character but I had this kind of shadow life that was happening and that entertained me (laughs) through lockdown (laughs) so things would happen in my um, domestic life or on the news and it would give me an idea and I'd rush to the bedroom when I had a spare minute and just scribble it down so it was my way of trying to to stay sane during lockdown as well. And with some comic results. So, <laughs> Well, you have to laugh because otherwise what are you going to do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I completely relate to that. Mm. Um, would you kindly read page 17 for us? Um, I'll just set the scene for you, uh, for the listener. Um, so we're, we're here in, in lockdown Melbourne. Um, the the eye character has devised a plan to escape the cloisters of the family's four walls during this lockdown. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are a few loopholes in this system, I say. First, did you know that if we were lucky enough to have grandparents around, they'd be allowed to look after the boys? 
Like, everyone is doing this in the name of their physical and mental health or whatever. It's a total loophole in the system. But we... Second, I interrupt, because this... This is the part that truly reveals my creative genius. Do you remember Alicia, that hot single mum? Honestly, that complexion of hers. Talk about glowy. I don't know how she does it. This time he turns around. Why? The expression on his face is pure suspicion. Polyamorous, I say. We should be polyamorous. I hold up my phone. According to this, you, as in you, my dear husband, can leave the house if you have a girlfriend and you can take the kids with you, leaving me to a blessedly quiet home. I go on. So I thought maybe you could give Alicia a... You need to have a lie down. Already he is shooing me out the door. (laughs) Hilarious. I think it really encapsulates a lot of pandemic parenting for me. <laughs> yeah. So um, another, your, your title story, Born For You, mm. has a speculative idea at mm. its core. Uh, can you explain this for us? Well, it's interesting because everyone says this story is about a dystopian future and I didn't know that. I thought I was writing a realist story about right now. Oh, my God. Um, but it explores some of my concerns. So in um, the story, a woman is grappling with the idea of bringing a child into the world, um, given that the world is, you know, as she says, overrun with fascists and um, the climate crisis is happening. So she thinks, you know, is it actually ethical and right to bring a child into the world? So she and her partner have agreed that they won't do this. They can't do this. They're not going to have a child. But she has this deep longing for a baby. And so she adopts a plastic doll. Um, And these dolls are real. They're not ordinary dolls. When you see them, it's quite uncanny because at first they look like a baby, but there's something about them that's unsettling. And then on second glance, you realize it's plastic. It's not a real human being. Mm, It really speaks to the moment, I think with all our sort of mixing of AI and and Mm. the real world. Um, So do do you think our culture confuses this sort of sense of disposable with the valuable, perhaps mixes it up. Mm. That's what I received from, from your so work interesting. and that's, that story. Yeah, I think you can interpret it however you want, actually. I was interested in my own disgust when I saw these babies and they're a huge thing. A lot of people adopt them for all kinds of reasons. And then I thought, well, why do I find this unsettling? What is wrong with expressing love and care in this way? So I wanted to dig deeper and explore my own feelings and then uh, that also brought up the question okay it's not a real child but then what if you treat it like a real child what obligation do you have towards that child are you allowed to say throw it across the room like the narrator does in that story and for me that was a really confronting scene one moment she's loving this baby and the next she gets frustrated and she throws the child her child across the room Uh, so I think these baby dolls bring up so many conflicting feelings and the ethics around them are quite unclear. Yeah, an ethical conundrum, definitely. Mm. Um, So another story of yours that also fascinated me and was so well written, um, The Principles of Chemistry, Mm. which was set in the Warsaw Uprising of 1944. The Polish mother character intuits what lies at the crux of another family's dynamic, and I quote from you here, in this brief moment, her mother had held the truth in the palm of her hand. Then, just as easily, she had brushed it aside in favour of the dishes. 
This one simple line tells us so much about your characters and about women's lives. Mm. So can you tell me about this story? What was the mm. origin for the story? Uh, well, I've got a Polish background and uh, through that I learned about this period in history um, in which the borders changed. So I, I researched it after yeah. reading this. It was very interesting. It's so interesting. I mean, Poland's borders have fluctuated for hundreds and hundreds of years. The country has changed shape and borders many times. Uh, but after the war, uh, the Allies gave um, part of Germany to Poland and the country kind of shifted, um, which is extraordinary. And um, so lots of Polish people moved to the new territories, as they were called. But the really interesting thing, I thought, was the way that, um, you know, you could go, you could claim a house and you lived in this house with German people. So one minute these people are supposed to be at war and then the next minute they're sharing a domestic space. So that's the bit that I find really interesting the way that these big things like walk and then shape the domestic space and apparently some of these people lived together for a while and it was quite friendly so I thought that was fascinating. Yeah I, I like how you've chosen to traverse that that domestic space mm. and it's so political and yet so close and domestic mm. and and sort of from a female gaze potentially. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it and enjoyed that story. Mm, thank you. Um, you have a great way of encapsulating the world's imbalance and stating in small direct terms everyday sorrows, loves and injustices of womanhood and motherhood. This one-liner that I'm about to read out now could be the answer to life's problems. <laughs> um, and it's this. It will be a great day when our school gets all the money they need and the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. Mm. <laughs> But that was that was such a 1980s line and that, that was a real line that I remember hanging off a tea towel in a kind of left-wing cafe I used to go to very occasionally in Darwin when I was a kid and that was their whole ethos, you know, people first, care first and I love that. I thought, yeah, that's what I would like to shape policy. I, yeah. I, I'm there with you. Mm. Um, uh, so... Finally, I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, please, Magdalena, to read um, a little bit from the story Frog Song. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it speaks to this, this, the big and the small again of, of what parenthood really mm. is about. Mm -hmm. um, so in this story, a mother returns home to Darwin with her new child. Um, and this scene now is kind of her thinking back on when she was pregnant and getting a screening at the doctor. <clears throat> on a screen above her head, she saw the amphibian-like creature inside her. She saw him kicking. She saw him sucking his tiny thumb. Superimposed on the black and white image were splotches of red and blue. They signified the flow of blood and were totally normal, she was told. Even so, they filled her with unease. They looked precisely like a cyclone warning. She didn't think of it again until the boy was born, and each simple task, sterilising bottles, folding clothes, took on the magnitude of cleaning up after a tropical storm. It was more than just exhaustion. Everyone told her that when she had a baby, she would be flooded with love. What they didn't say was that it would crack open her sorrow too. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. So 
Um, I was really engrossed in each of these stories and each of them has such a different sort of flavour and different voice and a different angle. Um, What's your tip for writing a good short story? Oh, Oh gosh, I think it's so hard. I mean, I think all writing is hard and I did labour over these stories for a long, long time and I think basically... Yeah, that's that's it. It's a huge amount of work. I think my approach would normally be drafting and redrafting and redrafting again and finding within that the perfect place to start. So cutting out a lot of words until I get to a beginning that feels right. And once I have that beginning in place, then I've got the voice and the story can hopefully flow from there. Um, but it's, you know, it doesn't happen with a kind of stroke of genius. It is actual labour for work. me. Yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, thank Magdalena. you so much for having me. Uh, so Born For You is published by Ultimo Press. Our author is Magdalena Maguire. Thank you. Thank you. Well, from short stories to terrorism. What would be the worst terrorist act you could think of? Peter Hubbard starts his book with one and introduces characters who may be able to help in the tears of hope. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Jen. Thank you. Peter, on page one, the most unthinkable terrorist attack has occurred. What's it on? Uh, The Vatican is attacked at the time of the conclave and the attack manages to wipe out 95% of the senior members of the Catholic Church, kill several thousand bystanders and reduce the tombs and the most valuable collection of religious artefacts to dust and muddy water. Now that's quickly followed by an attack on a Jewish and Muslim heartland. Where's that? The Dome of the Rock. Uh, it's very famous in history for being perhaps the centre of the Christian universe as well as the Muslim universe. Both sides claim it and it swaps possession every hundred years or so. But it is crucial because in today's modern world, the Jewish religion worships what's now known as the Western Wall. Uh, And the Muslims worshipped the dome itself, the actual rock where the angel Gabriel was said to have come down and anointed the faithful at the you know, at that time. Well, of course, there's the possibility that it could be the Chinese or the Russians. But what ha- what's happened to them? <laughs> well, at this point in time, we're only on page one. Uh, we haven't got to the Russians or the Chinese. They are dealt with in a different way. And I'll leave that uh, for no. a, well, well, a later their, conversation. Their economy is really challenged because their $75 billion gas pipeline is ruined. And economies are also targeted. There's an Arabian oil field bombed and now has radioactive oil coming out of the ground. And something more local is happening at the sports stadiums. Yes. The, 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 the whole idea of terrorism is to have people extremely unsure of what's safe, where they can go, what they can do without being involved in an attack. So the terrorists came up with the idea of bombing sports stadia to create the illusion that it didn't matter where you went, you were under threat. Didn't matter where you went, even in space. The International Space Station is destroyed, along with the communication satellites. And of course, knocking out the communication satellites knocks out internet, www. Yes, that's, uh, that's really the heart of the attacks. 
the terrorists decided that they would throw the world back to the 1960s in terms of technology. So they created a means of destroying the Mac chip in every computer and then destroying the internet. And in effect, that took out phones, modern communication, telecommunications, and threw us back to the 1960s in terms of the lack of contact and the lack of ability to reach the rest of the world. That was quite deliberate. A global meltdown. We also know from very early on the general is responsible. But the task of finding out how, why and who is doing the deeds seems to rely on a chap who is asleep on a sun lounge near the Great Barrier Reef. So who is he? Yeah, what a wonderful way to to enter. PJ Anthony is uh, the head of Section 5 of Interpol and he's having a rare holiday, if you like, and, of course, the Barrier Reef. Who wouldn't go for a holiday on the Barrier Reef? <laughs> and he's uh, detected by his lieutenant, um, who comes to find him and get him back into the, the action. And this is Captain Riley. Captain Jessica Riley, yes. Right. So their first meeting was a, a quite a while ago. What was the surprise happening there? Well, he pretended when she turned up that he didn't know her. She turned up with a couple of big policemen and... She treated him as if he was a suspect and should be collected, thrown in a helicopter and probably thrown in jail. Uh, A little bit of a byplay there because they both know each other extremely well and have worked together for five or six years up to that point. And their first meeting was she shot him. She shot him six (laughs) times in the chest, yes. And what a wonderful way to meet someone. Uh, While he was unconscious, she sort of had a chance to have a look at him. So let's hear... Peter Hubbard read about Jessica's first glimpse of Captain Anthony. A pair of deep, resonating blue eyes under thick eyebrows, a small scar running down one cheek, and a two-day-old stubble that made him look slightly Italian. Well-muscled, no tats, other scars on his shoulder and chest, old by the look of them, and a long-running red welt cresting from thigh to ankle on his left leg. One of the things you learn quickly on this job is how to size a person up part instinct, part training. But my gut was telling me this was a heavy heater, a survival of battles won and lost at the personal level, but unquestionably one of the good guys. One of the good guys. Now, while he's recuperating, he tells her his backstory about how he got some of those scars. And we do learn Jessica's bit of her backstory about what got her into the Navy. But she also wears a pair of bracelets, one featuring miniature diamonds and the other a string holding a brace of Buddha heads, gifts from different people and very different times. She's got a crush on Colonel Anthony and his feelings towards her are never stated, but his description of her, and this is a quote from the book, The Tears of Hope. This many-faceted woman, who was both seriously intelligent, yet soft as marshmallow, and yet could kill you in a blink of an eye. Well, I know that The Tears of Hope is part of a trilogy, and in this book you mentioned that they, they worked together on breaking a child smuggling racket. Was there more of a complete backstory of both of them in another book? There could well be. Uh, that would be called a prequel, and I haven't got that far yet. I've gone down the path of extending the, the trilogy, almost Monty Python-esque in that, you know, a trilogy in five parts, and we'll see where that goes. But there could well be a, a prequel 
oh, at some point I'd in like time. to know about those Buddha heads. And, oh, no. uh, uh, yes. Colonel Anthony, or PJ, and this is another quote, works in a branch of the military that doesn't have a name. His description of what he does is, we are the cops, not the soldiers. And the way he approaches solving all these terrorist actions is walk the cat backwards. Peter, what does that mean? It's an old expression um, that goes back probably a thousand years or so. But basically what it means is, is that you go backwards in time and try and find the logical starting point for whatever activity or action that you're chasing. So if you can imagine that a cat has walked across the kitchen table, jumped up from the floor and come in from the door, you would go backwards following the cat's steps to find out where it started from. Ah, There's a lot of detail about the other organisations in all the other countries who Colonel Anthony works with. Where did you get all this knowledge from, Peter? Uh, That's really interesting. When I started this, it was because I came across an article in a, a science magazine that said that one child under the age of 10 is dies every eight minutes in a refugee camp somewhere. And I saw that and thought, no, 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 that can't be right. That's that's a funny number. I then contacted a whole range of organisations, which took about six months, and found out that that number was not only probably correct, but understated. And because of that, I started a deep dive into the research area of what all these things were about and, and how they come about and how the refugee situation has evolved over the last thousand years. Uh, and, it, and it just basically was six months of hard work and digging um, to find where the information came from and how accurate it was. Well, this takes us into another side of the story, and that brings in Brother Fernandez Gomez mm. in an incredibly remote location. What did he experience? Well, Brother Gomez was part of a, a teaching facility in a refugee camp, um, probably in the 1980s, middle of the 80s, when a, we'll call him a, an imam, created a school out of nothing and invited the Catholic priests or the Jesuit priests to join him and create a school for the children. And they ran this school without any facilities, without any help, without any money, for quite some time. And the relationship between the Jesuit and the Muslim became one of brothers, a brotherhood based in, in absolute tragedy and, and conditions that you, you really can't describe. And that relationship ended up with the Muslim passing a message on to the, the Jesuit, asking him at a particular time that when he saw the body of an infidel woman come out of the sky, that he go and find the president of the world, which of course is the president of the United States in this case, and give him a message. So he becomes a conduit from the past to the present. He got to Florida with no passport and little English, but here he met Father Andretti, who spent 17 hours, three truck rides and four hours walking and hitchhiked a car ride with Australian tourists who were off to see the White House. The White House, you think about all this terrorism. Let's hear a little bit more. Well, the White House was regarded by most terrorists and still is as the juiciest target on the planet. And more than well, one well-known aspirant for the FBI's 10 most wanted list had lost sleep plotting and planning a way to attack it. Equally, the entire American military industrial complex had invested thousands of hours and millions of dollars working out how to protect it from every imaginable type of attack. 
Sniples, Marines carrying man pads, man portable anti-missile defence system, patrolled the roof, six different types of radar, monitored every movement in the airspace for 100 miles around, Secret Service and FBI and the Capitol Police patrolled the grounds in constant physical electronic contact with each other, and three separate perimeters had been established. The first was a series of ram raids and tank traps outside the fence line, then the fence line itself, which was loaded with every kind of motion sensor imaginable, and finally the area of the entire ground was scanned by motion sensors and CCTV cameras, monitored in real time 24 hours a day. So here's Father Andretti with wanting to tell the President how the whole nation is going to be saved. Getting through all of that? I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, you'll have to read it to find out. Back to our heroes, Colonel Anthony and Jessica, and grown in number, Black Pete and Indigo, the head of Italian Interpol, and it's also with their teams of geeks they work out that the air traffic control has been interfered with and the chemical signatures in the bombs can be traced. And then they also track down Amira. Or did she let them find her? Another aspect of this book. You mentioned before and the refugees. How does Amira fit into that? Uh, Amira is pivotal to the story. She was a refugee who was pulled out of the camps by the Iman who was running the school, he recognised that there were highly intelligent children in these camps, pulled them out and placed them in homes around the world so that they had a loving family to support them. He also provided financial relief to act as an incentive. Amira was one of the first children who was taken out of the camps. She was given a wonderful education and a life in Israel. Went to university at 14, had a master's degree at 16, a doctorate at 19, a second doctorate at 20, 21, and proved to be a, an absolute super genius when it came to science and technology. She invented a, a nanite, uh, which completely changed the way the world reacted to things because it was that nanite which, in her lexicon, was designed primarily to clean up oil spills, but it turned out in the hands of the terrorists as something which could kill oil on the planet worldwide. And that's exactly what happened. So if she wasn't the only one, could it be a bunch of talented women making war on us all? Well, look, there's, you bring in a lot of other things too, Peter. Um, there's the underground secret library in Venice and how difficult it is to stockpile heavily guarded and dangerous radioactive pellets. And look, everything about so much more. Planes, the biography of planes, which I thought was just fascinating, that one was called Mutt and where it went to. Politics, money and power are usually behind terrorism. But what connection does this have with young refugee women? The Tears of Hope is the first book in a trilogy by Peter Hubbard. Congratulations, Peter. Thank you, Jane. Well, as I said, terrorism. And you had Magdalena Maguire. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.